Publishing for Profit podcast is brought to you by Ghostwriters and Co. Earn more money by publishing better content and learn how to increase your thought leadership so you can build your brand. Head over to ghostwritersandco.com for more information. That's ghostwritersandco.com. And now, your host, Joel Mark Harris. Hello, and welcome to the Publishing for Profit podcast. This is your host, Joel Mark Harris. Today, we interviewed Jordan Wade, who is the founder of Story Hero Media. It's a video production company that focuses on businesses, nonprofits, and social causes. Jordan has a background in journalism, so we spend some time talking shop about how he got into the journalism field uh, and then how he used his journalism skills for his production company. We have a great conversation, wide-ranging topics. Uh, he delves into his time covering the last five Olympics, which is pretty cool, and what he learned and the stories he covered there. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Jordan. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Hello, Joel. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Honored to be guest number 36. <laughs> My lucky so number. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I want to start off with your company, Story Hero. How did you start it? And I'm really curious about the name. Sure. Um, I've got a journalism background and for a few years I was bouncing around doing a lot of freelance work and then I had an opportunity to get a government grant from WorkBC to start my own business. And when I heard about it was a $10,000 grant um, that helps you start a business, I was actually more interested in the $10,000 than I was in starting a business. But I went through all the hoops and I was able to a secure a place in the program and through the program, which I highly recommend, it really kind of took this, you know, just a, a, a crazy colossal mix of ideas and help harness it in a much more um, focused way. I was able to uh, come up with a video company that wasn't just going to focus on journalism, which is again, my, my background and my, my main interest going into this, but expanding it to uh, make, promotional marketing videos for others who needed my skill set. Um, and yeah, when I was thinking about it, you know, I, I had a few different names in mind. One was, I almost called it cultural impact productions because um, I've traveled quite a bit and I've actually done a few different uh, reporting projects at the last few Olympics. And I was not so much focusing on the sports, but more the, the cultural and social impact of the games on the host city. But you know, and I workshop that name around with a few friends and colleagues, like it sounds a little bit too stodgy for you. You need something a little more fun because you're a fun guy. <laughs> and uh, it's funny, I, I did this 10 day meditation retreat. And I remember thinking, I'll, I'll just I'll just meditate on the name while I went to retreat. Meanwhile, like it was a silent retreat too. I didn't I didn't think about it at all. I was just like, I don't know. It just didn't, it didn't come up at all. So then a few days later I was at the beach with a friend and he's like, Oh, so how was the retreat? Did you think about your name? I'm like, Oh, I totally forgot. <laughs> I was too busy meditating. <laughs> and then he said, well, you know, maybe, uh, 
you know, what, maybe we can workshop a name here. This is like at Rec Beach on a, on a gorgeous hot Sunday. I was really appreciative that instead of just wanting to drink beer, he wanted to like help me work through this thing. And I was like, well, you want to, you know, I want, I really want to include story in the name. And I want to help uh, make people feel like they're the, they can become the hero of their own story. So something with like heroes and stories. And um, I was like, hero story? I'm like, no, like story hero? Like, oh, story hero. And I almost thought, well, instead of it being like two words, like story and hero, putting them together, I almost saw it as being like a character. I almost seemed like, like a knight, like named story hero, kind of riding in on his horse. <laughs> to uh, save the day? To save the, to save the day, exactly. Or to help help save your um, your the video. Damsel in distress. <laughs> <laughs> well, the damsel in distress could be that your 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 marketing message is going down the tubes, and Storyo comes in and gives it like that that mighty boost mm -hmm. to uh, to make it a much more engaging, captivating story. And uh, and then so I, ever since we, I came up with that name, the logo and all the branding has much more been um, indicative of. of my my character my personality my my goals uh, and my uh just a makeup that kind of uh makes me who i am mm -hmm. and i was it was kind of liberating because I, I feel the name has allowed me to tap more into like that fun side of myself that i maybe felt a bit limited by you know i think before i became an entrepreneur i was like oh entrepreneurs like live in this box so i have to be like a, a business person and it's allowed me to you know be more of my authentic self what, so what's uh, so important about storytelling? Well, I mean, stories are in everything. And, you know, when you, when you, you know, when you're thinking about when you're getting together with your friends, you know, you're catching up, but people are telling stories. And uh, rather than just, rather than just, you know, having a marketing message, I wanted the messages to be, to be colorful and full of full of the great details of a story, and I and I didn't even re realize this until after I sort of became a journalist. But I just I have this natural um, gift as a storyteller. So, you know, for for a long time, uh, I wanted to be involved in broadcasting, and when I was a kid, it was sports, and then in, in my early twenties, it was uh, music, and then sort of late twenties, it was more news, but. Uh, now, and just, you know, around the 40 mark, <laughs> I realized that uh, it's actually all those things combined is, is storytelling. Um, and you see, it every, you, know, you see it everywhere. You know, you look at uh, the, the, the marketing messages that are, really, that are really being impactful are the ones that tell a great story and are not just giving you a line or an image. You know, I think about... Um, Tom's Shoes, for example, you know, they, they were founded, um, it was like, you know, by a guy named Tom, it was kind of a little garage operation. And they've now grown to become, you know, one of the biggest uh, shoe companies in the world. And one of the great things they do is for every pair of shoes they sell in the West, they donate a pair of shoes to um, a child in need in the East. So, you know, it's just like that story of how they started. And I'm, you know, I'm leaving out lots of details there, but that's kind of the, 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 the basic uh, idea is so much more engaging than like, you know, a, store, a, a shoe company that just like, you know, we, we make discount shoes or we make leather shoes or. So I feel finally now in the last five 
ish years, brands are starting to really recognize the power of including their own story in their marketing message, as opposed to just having some, you know, some, some zinger motto or some, some um, glossy images. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about your journalism background because I, you know, I have a journalism background as well. And so I'm always very interested in other people's perspective. How did you get into the field? What drew you to the field? And maybe, you know, this will be a three part question, but uh, what do you see in journalism today? And you can answer any of those parts that you like. You can pick and choose if you want. Well, I'll try to go in order because the third one's going to be tough. But uh, yeah, as mentioned, as a kid, I always was fascinated with radio. Uh, and again, initially it was, it was sports radio. And I got older, it was, it was more music, like, uh, you know, the, like the latest alternative or indie, indie tunes. And just like these, these great storytellers would telling sports stories or stories behind the music. Um, then when I was, ironically, I was actually working uh, for the Olympics um, as doing the torch relay in 2010. When unfortunately, I won't get into all the details, but unfortunately I was, I was asked to leave the torch relay tour. Me and my manager were kind of butting heads. And, you know, I, I had, you know, I had four months of, of work plan to be touring all across the country and making X amount of money. And now suddenly, um, November, 2009, literally 11 years ago this week, um, which was still three months until the, the games were going to start the rug was kind of pulled out from under me and I'm like, Oh, I, now I, I was kicked off the tour, sent home to Toronto. And I was like, well, now what? And I, I just thought long and hard about what I wanted to do and thinking about all my experiences with, with broadcasting. Uh, but recognizing that I was much more interested by this point, I'm much more interested in current events and pop culture, what was happening in the world, especially because with the Olympics, there was, you know, it wasn't just the sports. I mean, there was so, much happening around Vancouver 2010, uh, politically, socially, economically, uh, physically, the space of Vancouver was evolving uh, spiritually, just like when you have such a convergence of so much energy in one place at one time. Uh, so that really got me interested in looking at the games in a more holistic fashion and then thinking about my own interests in a holistic fashion. And I think that was it was when I came home and I had that time to sort of sit in my thumbs about like, what's my, my next move going to be? It's like, no, I really want to make sure that I can continue this, this broadcaster itch uh, to tell stories at the time. I didn't know it was telling stories and, uh, and go into um, the next evolution of that. And when I looked at other opportunities, there was no other master's programs for radio and television arts, which I did in my undergrad or, or communications. Like journalism was, was the only master's uh, option that kind of resonated with, with my interests. And I spent a good chunk of time researching other graduate programs because I wasn't, I don't know, I felt like at that point I'd already done an undergrad degree. I didn't want to just take another, another, another diploma program, or another thing. Exactly, exactly. And you know, my dad was, has been, he was a professor at Ryerson for 48 years. Really? He was. Actually, he, he attended, he was in the hospitality and tourism program at Ryerson. He actually was a student there for three years before he got hired after he graduated. So technically he was with the same program for over a half a century, 51 years. So, you know, with his academic um, 
uh, chops. You know, he was like, don't, don't waste your time doing a, you've already got an undergrad. Make sure you go do a master's. That's the next logical step. And the only one that really, as I spent a lot of time, I was looking at MBAs. I was looking at maybe doing something with urban planning because I had this interest in, 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 in cities. But no, journalism was the one that kind of ticked all the boxes. And I was quite nervous going into it because I wasn't actually sure if I wanted to be um, like a news reporter. And I think that's what I sort of saw journalism as. I didn't, it was for me, I had a very like narrow window going into it. Mm. Uh, and when I got in the program, I realized it was actually, I could kind of carve out my own niche. And um, even though there wasn't an abundance of opportunities that were available, like a lot of other programs, um, you know, engineering, for example, or finance, it seems like these jobs um, seem to be, uh, there seems to be an abundance of opportunity upon graduation. Journalism is, is not necessarily the same thing, but I really was grateful for uh, the experience, for the network, um, and just being able to kind of find out what it is that I'm interested in and, and seeing how I could uh, take that into the next phase of my life. That was a very long-winded answer. Thanks for your patience on that. <laughs> uh, and so do you keep uh, the pulse on what's going on in journalism today? I know you're, you do a lot of marketing videos, but you know, I believe you still do a lot of journalistic pieces. So what do you see out there today, uh, you know, both uh, positive and negative? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, with, with Story Hero Media, I've, I've had to uh, evolve a little bit of what I wanted to do uh, in, order to, um, in order to keep the business machine going. So that's why now, you know, our, our, our number one product is, is the mini hero, I call it, which is kind mm -hmm. of a, a chance to kind of get your feet wet in video for, for entrepreneurs or solopreneurs that haven't uh, had much experience in video. Um, but, you know, so marketing and promotional videos has been what's been kind of keeping the economic engine going. But again, my passion has been storytelling, social impact, especially stories around inclusivity, um, sustainability, and positive stories. We don't hear a lot of that in the news. So I've been keeping my eye out. And I also want to give, uh, give a, a nod to Novus Community TV because I've been a, a, a host and producer with them for the last five years. And, you know, they've pretty well given me almost carte blanche in terms of like every time I pitch a story, they're, they usually are saying, yep, okay, we'll, we'll back that. And I've just noticed at the beginning, they had me doing these really weird, I was doing like the zombie apocalypse, like all these kind of quirky stories. But as the years have gone on, I've really taken more of an interest into, um, again, the same values I mentioned before, stories of social impact and inclusivity. And uh, so I try and make sure that even though we're doing these business videos that I'm doing at least one video segment a month, which is now a co-production of Novus TV and Story Hero Media, which usually involves focusing on, you know, something that is happening locally that has more of a global impact, you know, like Black Lives Matter, for example, we, we actually did three separate segments on three rallies that they had this summer in Black Lives Matter. Um, we did, uh, you know, last year we did the Global Climate March. We've done stories on all the different elections, the Canadian election, the BC election, and of course the, the election we just had a couple of weeks ago. And it's always been interesting hearing all the different perspectives. And what's interesting is that some of my colleagues are telling me that I should be marketing more of my, the videos 
for uh, promotion to kind of get more clients. But my heart is like, no, I really want to like tell these stories. So if you look at our, um, our limited social media, I've been posting much more of the social impact journalistic pieces than I have been the marketing pieces. And mm-hmm. it's something that I'm probably going to have to reconcile if, <laughs> as going forward. But just between you and me, I still have that, that heart in journalism, even though I've got my, you know, I'm kind of wearing my entrepreneur hat, but there's still like, there's this journalistic heart that wants to be telling those, those stories. Yeah, no, I'm the same way for sure. Um, I still, I'm very passionate about journalism and even though my, yeah, like, I guess kind of like you, my, my foot really isn't in the game anymore. I still, uh, you know, it's still something that I pay attention to. And I think it's, it's very important. And the, the way journalism is viewed, how stories are told in the media, I think are super crucial. And it, and it doesn't get enough attention put in the general public. And at least that's my, my two cents on the, mm-hmm. on the um, subject. I don't know if you want to comment on that or we can move on. Sure. I, I also would... I would like, I'm curious too, is when you, you said you still keep your foot on the pulse uh, or your finger on the pulse, I guess, foot in the door, whatever the, whatever the <laughs> analogy we're using. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what sources are you keeping abreast with regularly? Yeah, so, it, it, you know, they're not the best, but, you know, just reading a lot of um, the major newspapers, Globe and Mail, um, The Guardian, uh, you know, magazines, McLean's and, and, just seeing what's out there and what is being published, I think is the most important thing mm-hmm. for me. You know, it's, it's probably, again, not the best, but um, it's interesting. And then of course, you know, social media being such a huge influence uh, into everybody's life. So seeing what people are posting there is, is very, very interesting. And I think very important. Um, but I don't think these types of conversations are, are being had where like, okay, what's, you know, how, what does the media landscape look like today, you know, and how can we improve it? I think a lot of people say, yes, it's bad that there's a lot of division between, you know, the left and the right or what, what have you. Uh, but there's not a lot of, of conversations on how can we improve it? Like what's, what can we do going forward to make sure that these stories, the stories that you, you're telling are told more and they're getting a bigger platform? I think that's what's really missing in, in today's uh, conversation. And I don't see that happening a lot, uh, you, know, you know, especially, you know, even more so now, like the, the journalism industry has been shrinking for such a long time and it's, it's, we're just kind of accepting that's the, that's the new reality. But I think there's a way where we can see journalism thrive. And I don't know, I don't have the answers, but I think there's definitely a way we can see where, you know, we can have journalism thrive. We can tell those stories, um, you know, cause I, I just see how people are getting, you know, special people, people in power, especially you know, not naming any names, but um, how people, you know, they're, they're exploiting this gap in the, in the journalism realm because there's no one there to hold them accountable. There's, there's not that intrepid reporter hounding their heels to get that story and to uncover 
um, you know, whatever it may be. Like, I, I kind of, I'm of the opinion that, um, you know, if Donald Trump had been the president 50 years ago, somebody would have done a story about his taxes and covered his tax situation a lot sooner than they mm-hmm. actually did. And I think the fact that there's just no resources out there in the newsrooms to go after these stories and to um, uncover these details, that is what we're missing today. And I guess, again, that's a, I'm, I'm now on my soapbox and, and preaching a little bit. Uh, and I'm supposed to be interviewing you, so. No, no. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I did an answer to your question. I agree with a lot of what you said there, um, especially the part around like 50 years ago, like it, it never, there's no way it would have happened. There's not a snowball's chance in hell that a, a Donald Trump of 2020 or even 2016 yeah. uh, would, would be elected in 1970. Um, even though Nixon was a crook. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, when, when, once the Watergate scandal um, was exposed, you only really had like three major networks at the time. You had like NBC, CBS, and ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all kind of on board with like reporting the news um, to, the, to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. And most of the country was kind of um, on board with like, okay, yeah, they're obviously, they're cheating. They're trying to get, they're trying to get secrets on the Democrats. This is, this is unethical, immoral. Like he's a cheater. Let's get him out of there. And, you know, his, his approval rating was sunk below 20%. And it was like, I think something like 74% of the country was like agreed with him being impeached. Mm-hmm. Um, because we only really had those three uh, major networks that were all kind of on the same, on the same page. Um, obviously, 50 years later, the moral code of the world, especially um, America has like, you know, I, I don't want to sound in my soapbox here, but like, you know, what we held as, as, as morals in 1970 is very, very different to what we hold in, in 2020. And uh, it's, that's been, that's been a, re- a really hard, it's been a, a hard gap, a, a huge chasm that's been um, almost impossible to reconcile. The fact that you're looking at different sources, the fact that we have, you know, I wouldn't, I'm, I would never want to laud the death of print, but one of the great things about, um, journalism going online these days is that with a click of a you know click of a, a mouse you can be looking at sources from all around the world, and I found myself looking at you know generally I was when I was watching the U.S. election I was just looking through Google it was the easiest click, but I found myself after a while also going to the Guardian to see what the view from the U.K. was uh, from the BBC and from Fox you know I'm definitely I consider myself more on the the left side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to see how that was being reported on. And uh, some of it made my blood boil a little bit, to be honest. Some of the stuff Tucker, Tucker Carlson was saying. Um, but then, you know, you also, you mentioned about these, these standout uh, investigative journalists that are, that are um, you know, putting, putting their ethics ahead of, I'm not exactly sure how you phrase it there, but I thought about a guy at Fox News whose name is escaping me right now. I think it's Carl, I, I wish I had this name. I, just, I actually just retweeted this recently, is that when all of the allegations were going on about, um, about where is it? He's a guy from, a guy at Fox News, basically as a lot of the, the, the popular narrative at Fox was 
saying that it's it's all been it's all been voter fraud. Mm-hmm. He had the the I guess the the tenacity to stay true to his 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 morals and report on the news as he saw fit with it. There was actually no reporting of fraud, even though there's all this hoopla, mm-hmm. and the hoopla is just fanning the flames. And, and you know now we've seen, and you know some people who are staunch right wing supporters might get angry at me for saying this, but you know, it's been challenged in the courts over the past couple of weeks. Even the closest states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Georgia, has even after recounts, has all been proven that it's, it's blue. Um, but I think you're still going to have, you know, a, a good chunk of those 70 million Trump supporters that are going to say it was rigged because that's the, that's the narrative they've been fed. And, to, you know, to their, to their credit, uh, not to their credit, but just, to, you know, you know, in a way, it's not that they, it's like, that's what they know because that's the, the media they're consuming. And if mm-hmm. you're only consuming one, one narrative, uh, then that's what you're, you're going to believe is truth. So even though some of us that are a little more educated and have uh, a little more of a, a zoomed out view of what's happening, in, you know, from different perspectives, uh, if you're only reading that one news source, you think that's the truth. So you're going to, you're going to die with, uh, you're, that's the hill you're going to choose to die on no matter what um, the other narrative says. Mm-hmm. We oh, kind of went a bit off topic there, but. Uh, <laughs> like I said, I, I find this super fascinating. So let's um, get back on track. And I want to talk a little bit more about video and what, what exactly makes a good video, especially I think uh, with, you know, so much distraction out there. I think most entrepreneurs realize that they need to do some sort of video, but they're not really sure how to do it. So, you know, you've got these great video cameras uh, with high pixel rate and zooms and all the works, right? But there's, they still don't know how to produce great videos. So can, what are some tips that you can give people so they can, uh, create those videos that get them, you know, the likes, the shares, uh, what have you. That's funny because I, I'm much more prepared to a- answer why video as opposed to how video, but I'll do my best. Go ahead. No, you can answer that too. <laughs> well, um, you know, I did a, a presentation at BNI a few months ago where I talked about why video and mm. um, I, I just actually pulled it up here. So I, I would be fresh for our chat, but there was five really interesting reasons why um why video is is the the online marketing wave of the future you know one is science you know humans were a visual species people are 12 times more likely to watch a video than they are to read a piece of text um number two it communicates the message faster the best videos are short to the point it takes way less mental effort to watch a video than it would to read the exact same text in print and the best marketing is going to nail those senses as a way to get us to pay attention and stay focused. Uh, number three, it encourages shares on social media. According to Forbes, uh, Facebook posts containing video produced 1,200% more shares compared to videos with, uh, sorry, compared to posts without. And of course, the more videos you share on your Facebook page, the more people will share them in return, which means more exposure and more engagement for you. Um, number reason number four, it gives you better SEO. It's -hmm. a fact that websites with videos show up more frequently in Google searches and because watch them is a cause of visitors to stay on your site longer. It sends a signal to that your content is more trustworthy. 
And the number five reason, it simply converts better. Video marketing is the highest converting medium you can use to promote your business online. 71% of business, business owners say that video converts better than any other tool. And another reason why video converts better is it ties that emotional impact to the stories it tells, which ultimately brings a personal touch and creates greater trust in the brand. Yeah. Awesome. So. Those are the those are five whys. Um, right. We can talk about hows, but I also I'll, I'll let you I'll let you steer the ship here, Joel. I was just gonna say, you know, like I I know a lot of entrepreneurs they get that right. They get that there's a lot of good reasons to to use video, but they're a little bit you know the the entrepreneurs I talk to they're a little bit stuck in their head. They don't want to be on. Uh, you know, they don't like the the sound of their voice. They don't like how they look. What are some easy ways people can start with video? Um, yeah, you know, it's one thing, I mean, we, we all have with our iPhones, we have the ability at any moment to just hold up our iPhone and, and, and talk to the camera. And, you know, it, it can be published within minutes, instantaneously, if you include Facebook, and Instagram lives. But a lot of us, we, we know we can, but we don't. You almost need that accountability of, um, scheduling it and if you don't want to hire a professional video crew um that, that story hero media or many other great companies in vancouver could provide um it's good to have an accountability partner there uh so rather than just holding the camera like if you're gonna do it on your own rather than holding the camera up to yourself and just saying it over and over again i would almost like have a friend there and have whatever message you want to get across ask your friend to ask you so you can have a chat with him. You know, what's interesting is in the videos we do, we now offer a service. Um, and this is something that, that I do as well, is I actually like to meet with the client ahead of time for a very thorough 60 to 90 minute video consult session where I ask them a bunch of pointed questions about, you know, what message they want to get across and why they want to do this. And, and uh, I actually record the conversation, get it transcribed, and I come up with a, a loose script that I think would be the most engaging way for them to share it. And now keep in mind, this is 98% their words. I'm just kind of picking out some of the, the best sound bites I think would, would sound better together. And so what we've been doing recently is giving them the option of bringing a teleprompter. We, we have that option now too, uh, where they can read the script that I've created through their words from our, our initial interview um, or just show up to the day without the teleprompter. Most are choosing the teleprompter option since we introduced it this summer. But what I've noticed is that they kind of stand there a bit flat, they're holding their hands there and you can see their eyes going back and forth and it, it doesn't come across nearly as effectively. After three or four takes, I'll then say, okay, now just let's, let's put the teleprompter down. Just, just tell me like, you know, who, who are you guys and what do you do? And they you see them relax and they, they use their hands more and they get more engaged. And that makes a much more credible, likable, and engaging video because they're talking to their friend, or in this case, they're talking to me, and I, I try to be their friend, <laughs> especially <laughs> during the shoots. Um, so it, it's, that, it's that real person interaction. Reading from a script, you know, just looking at the camera, trying to do a script is not it's, it's a little bit too mechanical. And unless you're really skilled in 
Uh, and there are some, I mean, I have had the odd client that's really good at reading the teleprompter and they add a lot of inflection, but generally having a friend either there with you and if a friend's not available, here's another trick. Um, get a picture of a friend and stick a picture of the friend. Um, either, you know, get your, if you don't have a physical, if you can't get a physical photo, get a, get a digital screenshot of your friend and hold it up close to where your, your script's going to be and pretend you're talking to them because we want to have that human connection and that that definitely makes the story much more engaging and relatable than just reading uh, lines off the script and then okay so after you've shot the video you edit it how do you load it up to social media what is there some good next steps that you can do to help promote that video again because i think we're sort of talking about two different things here because what we tend to do is we, you know, I've got a really great team of skilled editors and cinematographers and, you know, my, my main focus is a story and I'm working with the client to make sure they, that we get the best, the best um, nuggets, sound bites to share on video. But then again, thanks to my amazing team, I'm able to help, you know, make it look really, really glossy and, and, and have them come across even more engaging. Um, so that's, that's what we do and that's what a lot of the professional companies will do as well is then you'll kind of give it to the, the video lead and they will, they will make it nice and pretty for you. If you want to do a DIY version, um, you know, I think you need to have, obviously make sure the video is, make, make sure you know your audience. And the, the two most important things is to make sure you know what's, who is the audience and what's the purpose. You know, what is the purpose of this video you want to share across it? Is it like a, a seasonal, is it like a seasonal uh, marketing campaign for, you know, maybe something that to do with Black Friday is, is happening this week, although I'm not really a fan of Black Friday. So let's say Christmas is coming up soon. You know, um, so you wanna make sure that you have the audience intact and what the purpose is. And if you can identify those two things, it should at least help you to narrow your message. Uh, make sure you have an engaging caption as well, mm. uh, especially making sure that all the particulars in terms of like the website, where to go to are in there, it's good to have a call to action at the end of the video, whether it be like, you know, check out our website, give us a call, send me an email, click on the link below, uh, as opposed to just having a message and allowing the, the, the audience to, to feel. And I mean, a lot of really great films gives you that opportunity, just like, ah, you have that, that great feeling afterwards. But the real powerful documentaries are the ones that give you a course of action to take afterwards where you can donate or go to the website and learn more or see how you can get involved in a certain cause. Um, so again, audience and purpose, make sure you know that call to actions, good captions. Um, lighting is important, um, but not essential. Audio is important. You know, there's lots of great, when I say the lighting, by the way, also with the lighting not being essential, like, you know, right now I'm just at a window, but it seems like the light is pretty good on me. So just make, make sure you kind of have those things intact. But if you're doing a DIY, you know, you can do it with your phone. Um, if you have a, a little, um, um, they have various audio recorders that can, can improve the, the quality of the audio as well. Um, like a Zoom H4n. Um, and you could either use a lav or you could just kind of hold it as a microphone. Again, when it comes to the DIY stuff, it's not really my forte because we are doing more professional videos and the guys I work with are all 
amazing cinematographers, gear junkies. So we do it more that way, but those are some basic tips. Yeah, I feel like I've been rambling a little bit here on that, <laughs> but. Uh, well, why don't, why don't we move on? Cause I, sure. I really want to talk about your avid traveler. Uh, you've been to, I don't know, the last, how many Olympics it is. Five. Tell us a little, the last five Olympics, perfect. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yes. Um, well, I, funny, as I mentioned earlier about getting fired from the Olympic torch relay, um, it was actually, it, it was, it was, that was the kind of the sad part of the story, but the, it has a happy ending because I was able to find a job working at a, a fan zone for the games. You know, again, I was, I was cut from the tour in November and I still had three months. And now were you here in Vancouver in 2010? I was certainly. Were you ever down in Yale town at an interactive fan zone called Yahoo fan Vancouver? Most likely. Yes. Okay, it's actually currently the distillery on, uh, oh, yeah. on Hamilton yeah, yeah. Street there, or mainland, I guess the entrance on mainland. At the time, it was a Yahoo-branded fan experience that you could enter from Hamilton Street. They had like about a dozen uh, computer terminals so people could like check their email. We had some screens showing some of the events that was happening. We had like a, a free hot chocolate and free popcorn. We had a photo souvenir booth with like kitschy Canadian hockey helmets and, and mitts and hockey sticks and stuff. And uh, yeah, I was able to get the job as, as the manager of that, uh, of that experience. So I, I flew to Vancouver to, to be here for the games. Very grateful that I could, you know, catch, be back involved in the Olympic spirit, despite what happened to me a couple months earlier. And it was, it was working on that fan zone. And then again, seeing we were getting thousands of people a day through there and just hearing their stories of why they came to Vancouver. And you're hearing, you know, whether it be the, you know, the relatives of, of um, athletes that came from, I remember talking to a relative of, of um, a Finnish skier. It, it was, I was chatting with, with one of his cousins who had come to, to you know, uh, Vancouver to support his cousin. Um, or just people that had driven out from the prairies because they wanted to be in Vancouver to like take in the buzz. And, there was such a um, such a, a great mix of stories uh, that I realized it was so much more than just the sports. As I, I mentioned this earlier, like you know, politically, socially, economically, spiritually, financially, there's just like such a convergence of of energy. In I mean, it's kind of like the Olympic host city almost becomes like world city for those couple of weeks. And in doing so, you're going to have so many great stories. And I realized that. I wanted to focus, you know, now that I was applying to the journalism school at UBC, that was my, my new course of action, that I wanted to uh, focus on uh, the, not just the sports, but like the cultural and social impact of the games. And serendipitously, uh, during the opening ceremonies, we had a, a private event at our, at our space, and I met somebody who actually was working in, she was actually working for Yahoo in Toronto at the time, but she went to the journalism school and it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great story, but I'll say it for another time. I'll, I'll, Cause it's, I, I want to keep this somewhat brief. Um, is that she, uh, she happened to be at the UBC journalism school. I told her I was applying she's like, Oh wow. She's like, let me, let me see what you've done. So I actually, the next day at the space, 
I brought in a copy of my resume. She goes, oh yeah, you've done some great stuff here. She goes, let me, uh, maybe I'll, I'll see if I can put a good word in for you. Right. And you know, my grades were not good enough to, to get into a master's program. But I think because of her meeting her serendipitously at the space, opening ceremonies, we're, we're watching Wayne Gretzky with the flame going through the rain together. We had that connection. She then called the school where she was a recent alum and said, yeah, check, you know, let's, uh, let's sort of check out this guy's portfolio. And the school called me after the Olympics and said, yeah, your grades are not master's worthy, but if you're willing to go back to undergrad, take five upper level courses and you can get straight A's, well, we can look at you again next year. And at that point, I was willing to take the olive branch because I felt really inspired that this was my new path and I really wanted to take it. So I went to UBC Okanagan in Kelowna and I, I worked hard and I got my, my five A's just barely, but I got them. And I was able to get into the program the next year. Um, and then from there, uh, both the fact that I fell so much in love with the, the, the cultural and social impact of the games, along with the fact that I, it was like this serendipitous Olympic connection, I wanted to go follow the games for the next, well, for, for the next foreseeable future. And the next games was the London Olympics. And it just so happened that for my journalism internship, that um, they gave me the opportunity of, of going to London and um, just trying to make some magic happen on my own. I actually had a paid internship with Global, Global TV that I turned down because my, my heart was like, no, I, I just, I feel a calling to go to London. And then I went there with a, a friend who's a TV producer in Australia. She met me in London and very shoestring-esque. We just kind of stayed on friends' couches, but we were able to, and because I had done uh, an internship at CBC a few weeks earlier in Toronto, we, we actually put together six different mini videos that was focusing again, on the cultural and social impact of the games on London. And the London games was a very exciting time because London was, you know, it was, it was, the, it was the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth that year. And it was just, the weather was incredible. And London was, it was a very different London that we're seeing now in COVID and, and in Brexit. But in 2012, it was an amazing time for London. So a lot of the stories we did was very like uplifting stories. But what was great is that the CBC ended up uh, saying yes to three of our videos and put them, ended up publishing three of our videos. Uh, and then they kind of made me their, their like kind of cultural reporter in London where I was like going to the, the closing ceremony concert with like Blur and New Order on stage. Uh, meanwhile, they're showing the, open, the closing ceremonies and, and I'm getting a call and they're like, okay, t t describe the scene. And here I am like, you know, with my friends, watching New Order play and like describing like the scene and it's going on CBC. And so it was kind of like an Olympic dream come true. And that was, you know, twice where I felt like I didn't really know, you know, what it was going to look like, but I just felt this compelling urge to, to go to Vancouver, even though I was fired from the torch relay, this urge to go to London, even though I had a paid internship in Vancouver. Um, from there, and again, I, I want to kind of wrap this up because I feel I've been talking about this for too long. The next few host cities, which was Sochi, Russia, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and Pyeongchang, Korea, were not quite as exuberant as Vancouver and London. And the, some, of course, naysayers that would say Vancouver had a lot of um, issues and it wasn't uh, the ideal place to host the games. And I agree with some of those sentiments. But on a, you know, you look globally, you look at a place like 
Sochi, Russia, Rio de Janeiro, Rio, Brazil. I mean, these places have serious social problems. Mm -hmm. So when I went to those Olympics, and I did a crowdfunding campaign to get myself to Sochi in 2014, and then a journalism buddy, we did a, a web series to get to uh, Rio in 2016, the tone was much different. We were still doing the cultural and social impact, but you know, the big story in, in Sochi 2014 was, was gay rights or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. yes, right. Putin, yeah, yeah. Putin had his, his anti-gay law. Um, and so I ended up doing uh, a 30 minute documentary about not only gay rights in Russia, but about human rights in sport. And uh, it was, I mean, it was intimidating in the beginning because there was a lot of fear but it was an amazing experience to go to, to, go to Russia. And I, luckily I had, a, I had a few friends that lived there from other places, you know, a guy that I had met in Korea years earlier, he was an English teacher there. And so I stayed with him for the first couple of nights. And, and I met somebody through Facebook who came to meet me in Sochi and she became, kind of became like my, my fixer. And again, it was all very shoestring X, but um, along with the help of a friend, Sonia Reznitsky, who, uh, who is Russian actually, and, and lives here in Vancouver, we co-produced the film, uh, a friend, Kevin Hawkins, he came on as the editor and then uh, it was, had a 30 minute film and ended up uh, making it to a couple of uh, film festivals. It was, had its debut in New York at the My True Colors Festival. And it was good timing too, because that was summer of 2016. So we used the proceeds from that film to then get me and my colleague, Armin Kazimi, who I went to journalism school with, to get to Rio for the 2016 games. Uh, for our web series and then um and then in 2018 um with finally as officially story hero media i went with um colleagues uh connor lang and uh Liv yoon of ubc and we did a, a documentary called mount gariwang an olympic um an olympic uh oh my god an, an olympic what's olympic travesty casualty Mount Gariwang, an Olympic casualty, uh, which was a story about um, a mountain that they basically destroyed uh, 50,000 trees of this old growth forest wow. just to build the Alpine uh, course for the Pyeongchang Games. And there was all this talk that they were going to rebuild, rebuild the forest, but uh, you know, it's almost impossible to, to build a, an old growth forest up to where it was. And they haven't used that site since. So, um, as a quick recap, and again, I, I, I know I'm a bit long-winded here, you know, London and Vancouver were very, like, fun, exuberant experiences. Sochi, Rio, and Pyeongchang were much more, I had to kind of wear my, I had to kind of take off my, like, you know, party, rah-rah Olympics hat and put on much more of a um, kind of a critical eye um, critical eye hat, if that's a hat, <laughs> but just, to, you know, to, to focus on uh, the stories at hand, because, you know, again, social and cultural impact has been, has been the through line through all of the reporting, but just because of those hosts, those host nations and, and the apparent problems were, were so much more intense in those locations that, you know, I have much more critical eye toward the Olympics now. I, I still love the, the idea of, you know, countries getting together and celebrating um, international brotherhood and uh, national pride in, in sport. But, um, you know, it, it's the IOC is, is, a, is a 
you know, it's a corrupt organization and there's a lot of money can be spent other places. And I just wish there was a way that, that we could use the, the, the spirit of, of togetherness and unity of the Olympics, be able to use that for more than just pat in the pockets of the IOC, but actually making real social and cultural impact on the places that host the games. And will you go to the next Olympics? I certainly hope so. Uh, I'll be honest, when I heard that Tokyo was, was pushed back a year, I was yeah. actually a little bit relieved because last spring there was so much coronavirus stress that I was like, oh my, how is, how is this gonna happen? So, you know, right now I've, we've got a couple ideas of stories we, we'd like to focus on. Mm. Um, I mean, the IOC says it's gonna happen, but not knowing if it's gonna happen makes it a little bit hard for me to really set my North star to Tokyo. Yeah. But, you know, I would definitely love to, I don't know if I want to do this for the rest of my life doing the Olympics. Cause it is, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it and I'll be honest, like it hasn't really up to this point, it hasn't really wielded the, the monetary wins that I had mm-hmm. hoped. It's been much more of a, like a, um, it's been like a, it's been great for the soul and it's been great for my portfolio. But it's, it's, it's so much time and energy has gone into, you know, I almost have to take six months off. It becomes mm-hmm. my kind of full-time job for six months to, to plan for this project and then go to the games. Um, so we'll have to see how, how things go in the coming months. But if all works out well, I would love to be able to go to at least Tokyo. And maybe this would, you know, it'd be one more Olympic project to maybe, tie, you know, wrap a bow on a decade's worth of Olympic reporting. And, and we'll see how that project goes and, and make, uh, you know, and make my, a future plan from there. What story or experience stands out through all these Olympic, um, uh, I guess, yeah. What, what story stands out? What story stands out? I mean, in terms of like, is there a theme that, a, a, a theme that stands out of all the Olympics or maybe like one particular story like that I could tell that, you know, maybe highlights. Um, whatever, with, yeah, whatever you want to go with. God, it's, uh, that's a question I wish you would have sent me ahead of time because there's so many. <laughs> um, well, in, in Rio, Okay, so quickly, here's the theme. The theme across the board is that a lot of the mainstream reporting just focuses on, especially the last three hosts, there's been a lot of negative press around mm. the things that have not gone right. Um, at least, again, maybe the, the, the circles that I tend to, tend to be in uh, maybe have more of a critical focus on the Olympics. But in all the places, the, the locals have always been even though they haven't had the same critical eye, like they're just so happy that, uh, that there's this, a big worldwide event coming to, their, mm. coming to their town. Even the kids in Rio and the favelas in Rio, you know, were pretty um, excited to know that all this hoopla was happening, even though if they weren't necessarily getting to go and see the games themselves. Yeah. So they so, didn't mind their government or, or the, all this money being poured into something that they didn't experience or didn't benefit them directly? Typically what happens is there's a lot of pushback 
in the days leading up, lots of pushback, up until about maybe five days in. And then at that point, suddenly people kind of catch Olympic fever and everyone comes around. I shouldn't say everyone, but the masses tend to come around and people end up, you know, even the, the biggest naysayers, I remember, especially in London, like in London's, you know, Londoners typically, the stiff upper, upper lip British yeah. were a little bit like, you know, oh, poo poo the Olympics. But then found themselves just like, you know, catching the Olympic buzz, or hopped up on Olympic excitement. Um, you know, in Rio, I remember seeing the, 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 the papers, uh, the days leading up, there was, and I had my, my friend helped me translate it, was a lot of, um, there was protests, there was like, you know, there was armed guard protests uh, um, clashing with each other. Um, and then the same paper that was reporting on that is reporting on like Olympic City, you know, a, a, um, after the, after the closing, closing ceremony. So then what happens is typically like things go back to normal and people kind of realize, oh, actually, maybe we could have spent that money a better way. But there's this almost like amnesia that happens during the second half of the games because people get so caught up in the excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, on the theme, generally the locals are have been so lovely, so welcoming. Um, even the ones that are are um, not for the Olympics have always just been just the most accommodating, lovely, warm, welcoming people. In, I found that in, in all in all those places: Korea, Brazil, Russia. The UK. But one story that stands out from, from Rio that I will share um, was the fact that, so one of the big um, oil companies in Brazil is called Petrobras. And they were a major sponsor of a, a brand new museum called the, Muse, the Museo da Mania, which translates into the Museum of Tomorrow. It's a really impressive structure right on the port of Rio and where a lot of um, you know, they had a lot of cameras set up during the, um, for the Olympics because they had like, they had like the big Rio 2016 sign there. That's, it was the same, it's right next to this big city square where they were showing the opening ceremonies on, on, on the big screens. So it's a really great gathering place. And it's this really impressive museum with all modern technology and just like in, incredibly impressive architecture. But, uh, and again, I want to give Armin Cazzini, my, my real Rio um, co-producer, credit for this, because he's the one who did most of the research on this story. Um, we came across uh, this other uh, museum a few blocks away called uh, La Museo de Pretos Novos, which is the Museum of the New Blacks. And when we investigated a little further, it turns out that what this was, it was just a woman's home. And when, they, when she was trying to renovate her house, they, they dug and they actually found some, they found some bones uh, as she was trying to renovate. And she's like, they thought that it was just, she thought, what could this be like some, some old, maybe some old dinosaur bones or something or some animal bones? Um, but no, it turns out that it was actually human bones. And after they went and did some forensic testing, it turns out that it was some slaves who were buried in this place um, from hundreds of years earlier. Now, keep in mind, Rio uh, or Brazil was one of the last countries, uh, I think it is the last major country to abolish slavery. And even though we all know about the slavery story in the United States, Brazil has a very uh, storied past of slavery. What's really interesting, though, is that the main port of Rio is where literally millions of slaves first 
disembarked on South America when they were taken from Africa hundreds of years earlier. Um, but instead of acknowledging this big part of Brazil's past, it's kind of been like covered up. A few blocks away, they this tiny little uh, space. It almost looks like it just could be a, you know, the size of a retail shop um, called the Museum of the Pretos Novos, the Museum of the New Blacks, which talks about their history. Meanwhile, on the exact same port where all these slaves first disembarked to start this huge chapter um, in, in a, a huge cultural shift for Brazil, um, it's just been covered up and there's been no mention whatsoever. You know, they've got the giant museum of tomorrow. So it's like, let's forget about the past. Like tomorrow, tomorrow, it's all glitzy and new. You know, and Brazil likes to pride themselves as being the, the country of tomorrow. For decades, it's been their motto, like the country of the future, the country of tomorrow. And they're really like shining that, waving that flag brightly with this, this museum. Um, meanwhile, the Museum of New Blacks is, you know, gets no funding and it's kind of forgotten about. So I found that to be, um, and it really was, I found it to be a very, a very eye-opening story about um, Brazil's past and kind of, and I think it, it speaks to like the, the divide of how marginalized people continue to be marginalized, whereas the big corporate machine that helps fund the Olympics continues to do their, you know, do their, their thing um, with relatively little checks and balances uh, because, um, because of all the hoopla and excitement. Yeah. Well, Jordan, I want to ask you one last question. Sure. And it is, and this is something I ask uh, all my guests, and that is, do you have a favorite book that you like to gift or you just like to read? And I'll also add that you can, you can instead, if you don't want to name a book, uh, favorite podcast maybe or video series. Mm -hmm. I also, I, I do want to give a shout out to the Edge of Sports podcast with a guy named Dave Zirin. A lot of the stuff that I, that really like lights me up in terms of like the, the, this sort of political side of sports, he covers this wonderfully in the edge of sports podcast, the host Dave Zirin and a lot of every Olympics, he's always done stories around uh, what's happening outside of the sports focus in, mm -hmm. in at least the last few Olympics. So I um, highly recommend checking that out in terms of a favorite book. Um, not, not related to journalism at all, but um, I'll mention two. One is a book called The Celestine Prophecy. You heard of it, Joel? Uh, it's just uh, interesting. I was just talking about that yesterday. The Celestine Prophecy yeah. is kind of my, my first foray into like spiritual awareness. And I discovered that book when I was about 18 years old. But it's got, it really helped. Um, and I actually read it every five or six years to kind of re refresh myself with the concepts. It's a pretty easy read, um, but it really, it, uh, it, I felt that kind of a lot of things we kind of maybe know instinctively, it helped to articulate. Uh, it's a great little adventure book. And again, it's pretty easy to read. It's only about maybe 240 pages, The Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. Um, but the book I, I'm also going to mention is uh, that I've been reading recently here is called The Game of Life. Game of Life. Yes. Have you heard of this one? I don't think so. No. Florence Scobble Shin uh, yeah. wrote this book in 1925. Mm. And many say it's, it's uh, 
you know the book The Secret or the, the movie The Secret yeah. that was like a yeah. big buzz about, uh, what was that, 15, 13 years ago? Was it that long ago? Oh, wow. I think it was 2006. 2006 Probably right. Yeah, yeah. That. Doesn't feel that long ago. That's true. Time has gone by way too quick. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, a lot of the principles of The Secret are based on this book here. And what I didn't like about The Secret is how it was, it, I, mean, I thought it was very kind of, they made it for like a, a capitalistic American audience. Like if you want a car, just picture your brand new car, <laughs> you know, whereas it doesn't work like that, huh? uh, no, but I mean, not in my, not in my experience, I think a lot of principles in the secret are great, but I just didn't like how it was marketed there on a very kind of capitalistic consumeristic mm. um, lens. Whereas this book is similar principles around, um, you know, trusting your subconscious to uh to help guide you in in the right direction but also asking for guidance too you know so if, if you're going through if you're going through something uh if you're going through like an episode or you know you can ask for guidance you can ask like for for some divine light to help help uh help guide you help you know um help you on your path and almost like by believing that the answers are uh, within you, uh, both in your subconscious and the superconscious, or like the, the higher mind. Maybe I'm getting a little too woo here for some of your some of your listeners, um, but it's I felt it's a really great way of kind of tapping into both again the subconscious and the superconscious to help you achieve the things you want to achieve in your life. And okay. she so wonderfully tells it and how you know if you look at it this way, uh, life can be like a game and have a lot of fun with it in the meantime. Awesome. I'll check it out. Yeah. Well, Jordan, yeah. thank you so much for being on the show again. For people who want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Thank you. Um, sure. Uh, well, Story Hero Media is the company. Um, we're storyheromedia.ca. We've also got the domain storyhero.ca. Um, uh, or you personally can find me on Instagram at Wadestagram with two M's. Uh, and Story Heroes on Instagram as well. And Story Heroes, all one word. Yeah. So, Joel, thank you so much for uh, the time, for the, the great conversation, and, uh, and for, your, for your patience as I blabbered on about some of these topics. No, it's all very interesting. I found it fascinating. So thanks again, and take care. Bye for now. Thanks so much, Joel. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Publishing for Profit. Please like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.